0: It to it, to okay. or where I don't mind, wherever it's most efficient. Yep. Thank you. Now, just a little bit of background to these um, sessions. I originally uh, prepared these talks for our uh, start of year commencement camp for our students. Uh, unfortunately, due to the... Uh, the uh, it was the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic before it was officially declared, but I think that had a big effect on the number of students who registered for camp, so we ended up cancelling the camp. So I never actually got to give these talks, uh, which is why when um, uh, I was contacted about this session, I said, oh, yes, well, I've got some pre-prepared talks on Jonah to share. So, uh, But just, I guess, a couple of qualifications. that I've prepared this with primarily with first year uni students in mind uh, and so I kind of haven't made too many assumptions about uh, where they would have been in terms of their own biblical knowledge or where they were at in terms of their ability to handle the Bible and interpret the Bible well. Uh, so it may be that as we go through this, uh, some of the things that I'll bring out, you think, oh, well, that's quite basic. I'm pretty sure this group, um, your biblical knowledge is quite good and uh, and you know how to handle the Bible well. My, my aim really with those talks, because of the nature of the camp, was to, uh, to show Christian students how to handle the Bible well and how uh, wherever we are in the Bible, it's always pointing us to Jesus. So we'll see how... Uh, we look at Jonah and we'll always uh, go to, to Christ. Uh, I was, in the back of my mind, I was aware that there may have been students at the camp who weren't Christians, so I wanted them to, to be hearing the Gospel. And I also wanted to uh, encourage all of the students there uh, to see God's calling on them to be going out and sharing the Gospel. So, that's behind this. It was, originally, it was four talks. So uh, I'm not sure exactly how we'll go over the three weeks. Uh, I think there's about 21 pages, so I'll try and aim to do roughly seven pages and hopefully we'll get through it in the three weeks. So we do these along next week. Yes, yep. so this, in case you're worried that we're going to get through <laughs> all of this in one session. Uh, so let me read from Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, 1 to 16. and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us. Innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and held him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Who was this man Jonah? Well, Jonah was a prophet in the the north, in the uh, Kingdom of Israel, at the time of Jeroboam II. Uh, He was about 75 years after Elijah, so around about 790 BC. Most likely he's the earliest of the minor prophets, uh, the 12 shorter books of the Old Testament. And he's the first of the writing prophets So the prophets for whom we have a book named after them, uh, unlike prophets like Elijah who are within those other books and we don't have a book called Elijah. Uh, We don't actually know a lot more about Jonah uh, except that he was the son of Amittai and a few other things that will come out as we go through. Now what's the main point of Jonah uh, here are some suggestions. These, these are actual uh, things that I've uh, found on the web. If um, have any question, just go to Google and Google will give you an answer, whether it's actually the right answer or not. Um, never know. So here's what people have said. Instead of making excuses, use your talents to fulfil God's mission. Whenever we decide to disobey, we can always find excuses like Prophet Jonah. What we need is courage and let God use our talent to share his message. Someone else said, He, God, doesn't like to destroy people who are doing things bad. God would rather see us turn from our bad ways and to do good again. Or someone else There are those who try all their lives to escape God, but like Jonah, they must finally acknowledge that he whom they try to escape is their only hope for a truly worthwhile and fulfilling experience. Now, you may like the sound of some of those, and they do contain ideas that are true, but they're not actually what Jonah is all about. Sometimes when we approach the Bible we may think the Bible is a special holy book and so we suspend our normal techniques that we use in reading other literature. However, the Bible contains many styles of literature, narrative, poetry, instructions, letters, songs and the same literary rules apply to it as they do to all literature. Or we may be used to experiencing the Bible as if it's a collection of motivational quotes and heartwarming stories designed to make us feel good about life and ourselves and to give us quick and easy solutions to life's problems. And that results in us never really wrestling with the hard and the dark parts of the Bible that challenge our assumptions and raise more questions than answers. Uh, Parts of the Bible that expose the guilt and the evil and the depravity of the world and our own hearts. Or we may think the Bible's just another book and we fail to recognise how it is written, how it is structured in the divine way. Uh, You may have heard of Professor Jordan Peterson, a non-Christian, who actually has great respect for the Bible. Uh, He sees it not as the word of God but as the definitive text for understanding the history of the human psyche, and I reckon he has probably read it more than some Christians have. Uh, he calls it the very first hyperlinked book. Here's what he says: My experience in delving into these Bible stories is that the farther I delve into them, the deeper they get, and that never ends. Just when I think I've got the bottom of to the bottom of a story, which is like twelve sentences long, I mean it's so short, it's unbelievable. It has no bottom and that's really fascinating. I guess it's partly that the Bible is a hyperlinked text in that any verse refers to many other verses and so you never get to the end of it in some sense. But then it's hyperlinked to the entire culture around it. That little picture there which is very hard to see is actually, if you saw it on the large scale and maybe next week I'll get it up on the screen, it's a list of every uh, single Bible chapter along the bottom and then the arcs are the, the connections that that chapter has with other chapters in the Bible. So you could say it's a little bit like Wikipedia, but at least 2,000 years older. You know, Wikipedia, you go there and you're reading and entering, every sentence has a, a hyperlink about another topic, you can click on it and go to understand what that word is or that topic is. What this means is we can never read any part of the Bible without also considering all the other parts of the Bible that is connected to it. Now, Peterson puts this down to the evolution of human consciousness over hundreds of thousands of years, but in fact, it's that the Holy Spirit has inspired the writing of it and every page of the Bible gives us a revelation of who God is and it's this revelation of himself that unifies the 66 books written over 2,000 years into such a profound and complete book. So, you can see I'm, I'm trying to present a basic understanding of the Bible to first year uni students before we even get into the text of Jonah Um So that being said, there are a number of helpful, uh, a number of unhelpful ways in which we might try to read the Bible, and in particular, Old Testament stories like Jonah. First, uh, you could call the historian or the archaeologist. So, in in handling the Bible text, there are kind of four main aspects. There's the text itself. What does the text actually say? Understanding that, you know, all the linguistics and so on. Then there's the what the text means in terms of the context. What did it? What was it saying to the original readers of that text? Then we do what we would call biblical theology, and say, well, we understand that uh, Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. So how does Jesus fit with this text? And then fourthly, what does it mean for me, the application? What are the implications of this text for me today? The historian, the archaeologist, just looks at the text and the history. So the Old Testament story, the Old Testament people, and what they come up with is interesting but useless historical information. You know, we know about the history, but we haven't actually made a connection with uh, the present and me. Another way of approaching it is what you could call the pietist approach or maybe the the mystical approach. And that goes straight from the text to me. So I kind of skip understanding all of the context and the background and how it fits into the bigger picture of the Bible. Um, And all that matters is what I feel it means for me. Um, and I think that's probably the most common way that people read the Bible. You know, Or maybe all they read of the Bible is the poster on the wall with a verse taken out of context. So they don't actually know the context of it, but it's almost like a little magic spell, in a sense. A lucky, yeah, lucky dip. Um, then we have the moralist approach. So, you take the text, you know what it means, you understand... The context, what it meant for the original writers, and then you go straight to yourself. So the classic example of that is David. David slew Goliath, and the application is that I can also slay the giants in my life. So straight from that to um, myself. So the implication of that is how can I be like the good people and not like the bad people in the Bible stories? Then the good evangelical, which is us, maybe, uh, we, we know we need to do the biblical theology. We know that Jesus is the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament and so we say, well, we understand the text, we understand the context and the meaning and then we say, how is it fulfilled in Jesus and then uh, how does that apply to me? Um, And that's a a very sound way of handling the Bible because that's the way the Bible is structured. I I think though we can still come out of that with what do I then have to do to be a good Christian? So often the application therefore is in light of this, now what do I do? God's done this, what do I do in return? Um, The final picture here which uh, is actually uh, a model that uh, Tim Keller Uh, Presents in his book on preaching, so I should have referenced that there. uh, Is Christ to the Heart. And what he does is he adds an extra step. So you can see we go step one, um, we understand the story. Step two, we understand the context. Um, And then step three, we actually do go to the application and say, well, how how do I identify with these people? How am I like these people who are experiencing God at work in this way? Uh, and uh, but how are my how is my my life like theirs? And therefore, how is my problem like theirs? How is my dilemma like theirs? So I'm like the Israelites who were facing Goliath. Uh, they face this problem of this this great enemy uh, how can that problem be solved for me as it was for them then i go to jesus so how did is jesus the answer to their dilemma and also to my dilemma so David and Goliath David isn't someone to copy David is a picture of jesus G- David was the Messiah who came, who rescued his people from Goliath, their enemy. Jesus does the same for us, doesn't he? He is the Messiah who comes, who rescues us from the giants, from our enemies. And so from there we go to the application, how should knowing Jesus transform my life? So see how step four here helps us to connect ourselves to the original writer and readers, not to ask how can I be like or not like them, which is the approach that's still focused on my actions, but to ask how am I just like them? How do I share in the same weaknesses, sins, lack of faith and unanswered questions? How, as they are called to look forward in faith, Will the coming of the promised Messiah bring a resolution to all of these things? And so how is the same true for me as I look back to what Jesus has done in his life, death and resurrection? The really critical thing in this process is knowing who in the story we are supposed to identify with. In the vast majority of the Old Testament stories, which were written not for individuals but for the community of the nation of Israel, We're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes not of the heroic figures like David, Moses, Nehemiah, Samson, etc., but of the Israelites who see and experience God's work of salvation through these people. And in doing so, we'll see how these heroic figures all point us in some way to Jesus. Jesus is the new and better David, the new and better Moses, the new and better Samson, etc., And as we'll see, he's the new and better Jonah. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus deliberately did and said things that pointed to these connections. For example, he taught the law on a mountain, he crossed the water without getting wet, he fed crowds with bread in the wilderness. And so the people asked Is this the prophet like Moses who is to come? So, who in the book of Jonah are we to identify with? And Jesus gives us some help in this. Uh, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now where are we to see Jesus then in the Jonah story? It's in the person and ministry of Jonah, because the sign of Jonah is that Jonah, three days, three nights, just as Jesus will be. And so, where are we? Where are the Israelites? They're the ones that we're supposed to identify with. Well, they aren't actually mentioned in Jonah, but the implication is that they're standing by, observing as Jonah goes to preach to Nineveh and thinking about what that all means for how they are to understand God at work in their situation. So Jesus is the new and better Jonah. We learn something about Jesus by both how Jonah is similar to him and how Jonah is different to him. And the book of Jonah pointed the Old Testament Israelites forward to the coming of Jesus. And it shows us how Jesus is the fulfilment and completion of all of God's promises. So with all of that said, let's finally look at our chapter and see how it comes together. Jonah had prophesied a time of security for Israel and the expansion of its borders. And so we read in 2 Kings 14 In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hepha. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, so Jonah was already active as a prophet um, before these events of this book. So Jeroboam pushed Israel's borders south, which led to conflict with the king of Judah, but he also pushed the borders north, reclaiming territory that had been taken by Assyria in the past. Uh, it says marked in red in the map, but you can see the little circles. Um, They're the two extents to which he pushed the border uh, north and south of Israel. Now Assyria was a growing superpower, the largest empire in the world up to that time. All the nations in the region were keeping a wary eye on Assyria, fearful of being taken over by them. Around 50 to 70 years after the time of Jonah, Assyria would expand south again and eventually taking over Israel entirely, deporting a large number of people so that the ten tribes of Israel lost their identity. Those who were left intermarried with others who had been brought into the area and they became the Samaritans of the New Testament times. So, at the time that Israel is pushing north into Assyrian territory, Jonah is sent by the Lord to go to the capital city of Assyria and declare its coming destruction. Of course, if the capital city of an empire is destroyed, the implication is that the whole empire has fallen. A modern parallel, and this was written at the time that um, all of the riots were taking place in Hong Kong, might be a student from Hong Kong travelling to Beijing to the Communist Party headquarters and publicly announcing China will be defeated and will become just a northern province, province of Hong Kong. So can you see why Jonah was reluctant to go? Israel was a dirty word amongst the Assyrians because of their brazenness in presuming to be able to conquer Assyrian territory. And now he, an Israelite, was being told to go to the very centre of Assyria's political and military power, the greatest empire in the known world, and to speak against it, declaring that the little Israelite god Yahweh is going to destroy it. A lot of Old Testament prophet books contain prophecies against the various nations, But Jonah is the only one in which the prophecy is delivered directly to the people that it's against. So we don't know whether, for example, Isaiah's prophecies against the nations in the book of Isaiah were actually literally delivered to the kings of those nations. They were given for the sake of God's people to hear that God's judgement is coming, but here the judgement is being directly communicated to this king. So it's not just that Jonah may have been fearful for his life and it's not that he thinks such an extravagant plan won't succeed. Uh, We'll see in chapter 4 that the reason he runs is because he knows it may well succeed and Assyria will be spared by God if he goes to preach in Nineveh. In his eyes the most evil people may be saved and that just doesn't fit with how he saw things. He and his people were the good guys. The Lord should focus on keeping them safe, not on saving the pagans. So he gets on a boat and he heads for Tarshish in the opposite direction, as far away from Nineveh and Israel as he can get, the the western end of the known world. Uh, Tarshish's thought was on the western uh, coast of Spain, So, an Israelite hearing this would be indignant at this point. Jonah is God's appointed messenger, sent to proclaim God's judgement on their greatest, most fearful enemy and he's abdicated his responsibility. He has not simply refused to go to Nineveh but he's also abandoned his responsibilities as a prophet to Israel. How can he be a prophet in Israel if he's off in Tarshish? What's more, he seems to be so untroubled by his disobedience that he's asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm. The prophets were supposed to come and assure them of God's saving power and remind them of his promises to be their God. The words that the prophets spoke were the words of God and it was by speaking through the prophets that he actually brought about what he planned. Now their main prophet has fled, leaving them without God's word. So he is, without doubt, one of the worst prophets they've ever had. So what hope do they have? Now Jonah tells the men on the boat that he's fleeing the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's, he's adopting the worldview of the nations uh, in the ancient Near East of the time, that the various nations had their various regional gods who generally stayed within the region of the nation to which they were attached. But now Jonah has to come to terms with the fact that Yahweh isn't merely the God of this small region of Israel. He is. As verse 9 says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Not just some small regional deity but the one true God over all creation. So they throw Jonah overboard in an attempt to appease this God of heaven and earth and sea and when the storm immediately stops they stand in awe of this great God Yahweh who has shown his power and made himself known to them. Now, another man in a boat. This story should make us think of another event in the New Testament that has some interesting parallels and some striking differences. Reading from Mark 4:35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." Be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now see how both stories have a man asleep in a boat, which is crossing to the other side of the sea, to Gentile territory and has been caught up in a great storm. In both stories, the other men in the boat wake up the sleeping man and say, in effect, what the heck are you doing asleep when we're about to die? Do something. This incident of Jesus crossing the lake has been very carefully planned and choreographed by Jesus he wants us to recall Jonah chapter 1 and to notice not only these similarities but to see a very significant difference that tells us something very significant about himself. In Jonah's story, the Lord is spoken of as the God of heaven who is out there and everywhere overseeing creation, controlling the elements, able to both send this storm and to end it. He needs to be thrown out of the boat, that is Jonah, effectively handed over to this great God. And that's the only way in which the others can be saved. But the story, the Jesus story is different because this man in the boat is this Lord of all creation embodied in human flesh and bone. He's not out there somewhere, distant and unknown, but he's right there among them. And so the safety of the disciples depends not on throwing Jesus out of the boat, but of having him with them in the boat. And can you see how they question, questioned? Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him, in verse 41, is here because... Mark wants the readers of the Gospel to give the answer now that we've been reminded of Jonah. Who is this man? He is the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. So unlike Jonah, Jesus isn't fleeing from his father's call. He's crossing the sea expressly to bring healing and salvation to a demon-possessed Gentile man whom he then sends out saying... Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he does willingly what Jonah at first refused to do and then does reluctantly. So where is the hope for the people of Israel embodied in these 12 men in the boat with Jesus? Where are they to look for relief as they sat under the oppressive rule of the Romans, a broken and beaten down people. How could they be sure that their God would ultimately triumph over their enemies, not just their political ones, but also the greater enemies of sin, the devil and death? Where were they to hear the word of God? How was God speaking to them? Well, all of this was to be found in Jesus, who embodies the answers to all these questions in himself. And the fact that both the book of Jonah and this story in Mark 5 is in the context of God's word being sent exclusively to Gentiles tells us that this isn't merely about the hope of the Jewish people, but it's about the hope of the whole world. The imperfect Jonah was sent to Gentiles. The perfect Jesus... Was also sent to Gentiles, to you and to I. So, like the men in Jonah's boat and the disciples in Jesus' boat, we need to stand in awe of this God of heaven who's come to us embodied in human flesh. I think we'll leave it there because that's seven pages, exactly a third. Thanks, everyone.